0: Why 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 Our mission today is Monday, September 1st, 2014. This is podcast number 381. And I didn't realize it, but I had gone over a year without having Davi Barker on the podcast. And I think it's because I talk to Davi or I chat with him or whatever, and it just seems so common that I forget how long it's been since he's been on the show. But today, Davi is back with us. So Davi, Welcome back to the Bad Quaker Podcast. Good to talk to you.
1: Good morning,
0: uh, or wh-
1: afternoon, or whenever you are listening.
0: Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> um, we were going to talk about uh, the the internet activity referred to as doxing, and we're going to we're going to talk about whether or not it's an act of aggression, or if it's just you know exactly what is doxing and everything. I have a definition from I think it's from Wikipedia. I should have written down where I got it from. Um, I'll go ahead and read it. And, uh, Davi, after I read it, you can give any kind of clarifications on that that you'd like to add to it or whatever. Okay. So this is doxing. Doxing is an abbreviation for document tracing, the Internet-based practice of researching and publishing personally identifiable information about an individual. The methods employed in pursuit of this information range from searching publicly available databases and social media websites, such as Facebook, to hacking and social engineering. It's closely related to cyber vigilantism, hacktivism, and cyber bullying. So what do you think about that, Dovey?
1: That sounds like how I do most of my marketing research. (laughs) (laughs) Like, uh, I'm constantly compiling lists of publicly available email addresses organized by by interest so like if if i need to send out a press release about bitcoin here's this growing list of emails i've found if i need to send out a press release about zombies here's this growing list of people i've found and so i mean obviously people can opt out but that's not what doxing is that just is the same method
0: right right
1: right. and Um, so i have to say that that method can't can't be considered it can't be considered aggression to go onto somebody's Facebook page and see if they've given out their contact information
0: I kind of look at it as let's say you're walking down the street and you look over you know you're right there on a sidewalk you're not on anybody's private property you're not violating anybody's uh, property rights and you look over. And there's a big living room window, like a big, you know, maybe ten feet wide and six feet tall, big living room window, with the with the curtains open and no blinds, and nothing else. And there's a naked person standing in there eating a bowl of Cheerios. Now, you haven't done anything to aggress against them by glancing in that direction and looking. I suppose you could even stand there and stare at them, and you're not you're not aggressing upon them. They've chose to ex, to expose themselves publicly, and so if there's any blame to be had here, it would be on the person who chose to expose themselves. How's that sound?
1: That sounds right. I might make a special caveat if the if it's an incident of of hacking or social engineering or or trying to bypass a person's securities to get the information. I think that might be aggression.
0: Yeah, because then we're getting into what might be considered cyber, cyber property rights. Like if somebody can figure out a hack to get into your phone to get, you know, private stuff from, from inside your phone. And we all have a certain amount of responsibility to keep ourselves safe and to, you know, to keep the doors locked, so to speak, and keep the blinds shut. But if, if somebody uses trickery or some type of, uh, Invasive method to go past security efforts that you've made and break into something, and not necessarily break because you can you can hack into things without doing any physical damage to you know to the to the thing. But I I think you're right on that. If they if they have to actively go through security, you know it's kind of like the thing of uh, when I was a little kid, one of the rules in our household. Was if a door is closed, like a door to a room or a bathroom door or whatever, you don't just open it and walk in. You pause and say something or you knock or something because the person might be dressing or whatever. And you don't necessarily have to lock that door. If everybody respects that closed door and understands that it's a courtesy just to say something before you walk in, then you don't even really need locks on doors. But yeah. Um, But when we take that to the outside world, we do lock our front door. And if somebody comes up and tries to open it when they're uninvited, actually just the act of opening it and coming in is trespassing, even if you didn't lock it.
1: Yeah, I've lived in neighborhoods in my life where the custom wasn't to lock the door. Yeah. And, um, you know, it still would have been trespassing to go into somebody's house.
0: Yeah, yeah. Uh, My door right now on the um, – I'm in our RV – And my door is not locked, but if it was to suddenly open, I know where my wife's at, I know where everybody's at. If my door were to suddenly open and somebody were to come rushing in, I'd probably pop them. I would probably, let me be more specific, I would probably shoot them before I even realized who they were. Because it's just like, you know, who are you, why are you violating this space? So I guess the Internet is the same way in that sense. You've put a password on something or, you know, you've essentially closed the door. If they go through that, then that going through is an act of aggression.
1: Well, there is a physicalness to it. I mean, like data exists on a server somewhere, and so by homesteading the place where that data is stored, they are in a sense, they are in a sense opening your curtains and peering in your window. yeah,
0: yeah, <laughs> you know so I guess the I guess the hacking part is is the divider here as to whether aggression but is that's not
1: place. as common. Doxing is usually just collecting public information. Like yeah. it's it, the idea the idea is that it's information maybe people have forgotten, they've left out there. Mm-hmm. Like if a person did a little bit of googling and a little bit of research on me, maybe it would take some time cuz you'd have to see what was written in blog posts, but you could you could sort of leapfrog back all the blogs I've ever written on and get back to my old personal live journal account, right? And now my live journal was it was publicly available, but it wasn't like a blog. It wasn't like news. It was like me talking about what I ate for breakfast, hmm. um, and I did that more than 10 years ago. So if somebody went and read my entire live journal, which is hundreds, maybe thousands of posts because I was posting daily, um, <laughs> they might be able to find some embarrassing information about me that I've forgotten about,
0: right? But now do you have any ownership over that embarrassing information? Well, I published it. No, it's out in the open. Yeah, exactly. It's
1: my fault for not taking it down. <laughs> I don't know that there actually is. This would be fun. If somebody actually did this to me, I might learn something <laughs> about myself. But, <laughs> um, that's the idea. The idea is that the person forgot that their MySpace account had their phone number on it or the person forgot that, you know what I mean? Um, yeah. But it's still they, they, they're the, it's like they're the one who sit, put it out there and it's publicly available, and you don't have to do anything. Um, so I don't I don't see how it's aggression if
0: you're not breaking in anywhere. I think a lot of people don't realize how much information is considered public information and how much is available out there. Uh, you know, there's services like LexisNexis and, and a bunch of others that do nothing but just gather data. Well, they do other things too, but they gather data constantly that's in the public domain so that that means every time you you know you register a car you pay for the license renewal on a car every time you buy a boat every time you um there's all kinds of things like that that you do uh every time you change your address with the with the post office every time you uh, close one um you know electric uh service account at one house and open it up at a different house every time you do that there's public records of that And there are companies that that make money by going out and searching out those public records, and they have a file on each person. And they haven't actually broken any laws or violated any privacy in doing that. They have simply had people who go and look and then write this stuff down and then make it available for other people.
1: That seems fine to me. I mean, this is what I mean. That sounds like what I do when I'm doing research.
0: I I Go ahead.
1: I guess here's, here's one that isn't mentioned in the definition, but I wonder what you think about it. What if it's information that I did not publicly publish on the internet, but that you personally have because you and I have a friendship and then we have a falling out and you publish that information. Like imagine if you had, I don't know, I can't, there isn't very much I can think of that would matter, but let's say that I had like, um, photographs of a person doing something criminal that were at a family barbecue and not on the internet and then i decided i was mad at that person maybe not even criminal maybe just embarrassing um and i published those photographs do you think that that constitutes aggression if it's not something that 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 person published it's just something that that person has on account of I their
0: friendships. I don't think it would be. I kind of fall back on Walter Block's uh, book, uh, defending the undefendable, or no, defending the, I, however, whatever it was. I can't. You know remember what's
1: that. a great example is high school kids sending naked pictures to each other, and then somebody's naked pictures getting spread around the school.
0: Yeah. Well, but once you once you engage in that, you if you don't realize the risk, then you're acting foolishly. But if you do realize. That you know you're taking a risk every time you do that. That's that's kind of like right now. Actually, there was a story of something like a hundred stars that had that had their private accounts uh, invaded, and nude photos of a hundred stars are now flying around. And are and, we talking astronomy or Hollywood? Hollywood. Okay. And, <laughs> and evidently, it's Bitcoin's fault because whoever the initial person was who made these available. Put him out for free and said, now, I've done this. Please give me some, you know, donate Bitcoin to me. And he only got like something like $150 worth of Bitcoin or something. But somehow that's Bitcoin's fault because now there's 100 nude Hollywood stars pictures floating around out there. But I, okay. I, I think in that...
2: <laughs> <Yeah>. This
0: <laughs> is not shocking to me. Davi's <laughs> like searching Google 100 nude stars. no. Um, no, but, uh, um, the, the thing that got me on that was that it was being blamed on, on Bitcoin. But I, I think the actual problem there is, um, how did the hack take place? Is this something like we were talking about a minute ago where they faked a, a password where it was weak security? You know, how, how locked does the door have to be before breaking it justifies, you know, uh, saying that, yes, this was aggression. So, you know, I'm I'm not sure the method that the person used to obtain these, but I would have to I mean, assume. I've never
1: been a paparazzi, but my understanding is that the goal is to follow around celebrities with a camera and just see what they do. Yeah. And then they do something goofy, like either a wardrobe malfunction or they hang out on a nude beach or they're not wearing any underwear when they get out of their limousine. And then... There happens to be a camera there because everybody's itching to get the next good cam- good photo of these people
0: I think there's something that often gets forgotten in the especially in the libertarian type thinking world, and that is that not everything that's rude is aggression you know you you have there's a huge difference between somebody just being a jerk and actual aggression and I, I think people get confused with that a lot.
1: Yeah, I actually um I think of it as a sort of um uh not a gray area like it's ambiguous, but a gray area like it's a classification of it, right? Mm-hmm. And in that sense like I don't mean that it's aggression in the sense of breaking property or aggression in the sense of hitting or th- or th- thieving, but I do think of it as um deserving of reciprocity in the common law tradition, that mm-hmm. if you're stolen from, that gives you the right to steal the property back. If somebody hits you, that gives you the right to hit them back. There is a reciprocity in common law. And if someone is a jerk to you, then what that does is it gives you the right to be a jerk to them.
0: Yeah, I would agree with that. that and I think that's not only very traditional um, because common law is essentially – uh, tradition, you know, but, but I think that's also, it it just seems very natural to me, like an interaction between, you know, two Neanderthals that are just sitting there and, and one of them thinks it's funny to fart in the other one's face. And, and that doesn't give him the right to kill him, but it gives him the right to, to pay him back in a similar fashion, you know?
1: I mean, essentially I, I don't like being a jerk. I, um, I try to be, uh, polite and cordial with people first out. But when somebody sort of and it's the same with logical fallacies, funny enough. <laughs> like, um for me, uh once once you've sort of once a person has come at me and they're just clearly being malicious in their in their language, I I write that person off and I say, okay, my normal rules of etiquette don't apply here. Right. If a person is saying something insane and I point out the logical fallacy and they continue to say it, then I say, okay, <laughs> normal rules of logic don't apply in this conversation. I'm now free
0: to play with this person. <laughs> right. <laughs> I like, you know, and I have observed that in you and I like that. <laughs>
1: So it is, it is, I really do think of it as I have these rules for myself that are about the way that I conduct myself and the way that another person behaves gives me certain licenses. Mm-hmm. If that makes sense.
0: Yeah. And that's essentially that's the golden rule. I mean, that's do unto others as you'd have them do unto you. Well, if they're doing that to you, that must be how they want you to treat them, you know? Sure.
1: So what do you so in that sense, I mean, the answer to doxing is more doxing, is that the idea? If we're considering it offensive speech, then the answer to offensive speech is more
0: offensive speech, right? Yeah. So if somebody says, you know, your feet stink, then your response cannot be to kill them. Your response is that you can go all the way up to the point of saying, Oh yeah, well your feet stink or maybe even upping it one and saying your mother's feet stink. You know, but but it has to be within the realm of uh... I thought you were going to say your knees stink. I'm saying (laughs) it too literally. (laughs) Yeah, but that's that's in, you know, that's in the concept of it. So, yeah, I know Anonymous, the the hacker group Anonymous uses doxing regularly and i i'm not sure you know if they have a standard as to what they can break to get that information or not or if that's set individually per anonymous user um, i'm pretty
1: sure hive doesn't have or i'm sorry uh, anonymous is a hive organization it doesn't have internal rules it's sort of like um a constantly mutating collective right sort of uh standard it's a consensus right so yeah. I don't know that they have rules per se, although I think that if something occurred that was so offensive to the hive that the hive rejected it, that might be the the standard.
0: Yeah, there's like uh, – I've never really been closely involved with Anonymous, but I used to play around with um, Cult of the Dead Cow back in the late 90s, and there was there was not real set hard rules. There was just kind of like – you know we all behave in a certain way and we expect you to behave in that way if you're going to be among us and if you're not going to behave that way then we're just going to ignore you or block you or whatever you know
2: mm-hmm.
0: but uh but that was a long time ago and I had a whole my my brain worked differently back then <laughs> that was concussions ago
1: so what's the etiquette here? Is this a general discussion of doxing, or are we allowed to mention those who generally are not named? <laughs>
0: <laughs> no, on this show, we can name anybody. We can, we can use dirty words like Molyneux and, uh, okay. and Cantwell and other dirty, filthy words like that. <laughs> so something that's
1: been sort of interesting to me about the whole discussion of, of Molyneux, especially the like cult qualities of his community, is um, – I'm not sure any of it is aggression, <laughs> so I definitely think that um, taking down somebody else's YouTube channel using a legal framework that is illegitimate is aggression. And in that sense, like it's the the DCMA, CDMA, what is it called? Oh, it's it's it's, yeah. it's the it's the copyright takedown that is the act of aggression. That's the that's the smoking gun in the room. Right. Um. But the stuff about um you know, advocating certain things or the way his community behaves and ostracizes certain members or like, even, even if we're not talking about Molyneux and we're actually talking about a cult, Mm -hmm. like where the line of aggression is. I mean, mostly that's just offensive. It's not criminal.
0: Yeah. So let's use somebody like the, the, they weren't called Stargate. What was that cult Called that? Uh, that waited. Hail
1: Bob. Yeah, that uh, waited.
0: Heaven's Gate. Heaven's Gate. That's it. Yeah. Um, so let's take Heaven's Gate for an example. They didn't force anybody to enter their cult. They may have used trickery, but it was, uh, essentially verbally, um, convincing somebody that they had a good idea and that their concepts were good and that, and, you know, I, I, I'm, and unless there's some kind of kidnapping that goes on and physical you know drugs forced on somebody or something like that i i don't think that it is uh, aggression it might be you know um not very nice rude uh dangerous but up until that final you know what i've referred to before is the uh the magic pill or the magic beans or whatever where the where the cult leader goes nuts and starts passing out poison and shooting anybody who doesn't cooperate uh, up to that point. I don't think you have aggression uh, uh, aggression. I think, I think you could have a fully functioning cult that, uh, that people that would suck people in and, you know, they would work their whole lives and to support the cult. And then it would still not be an act of aggression.
1: I wonder if there isn't an aspect of the authoritarian sociopathy stuff at work here too. Like if you were to form a community based totally voluntarily and it happens that that community has a charismatic leader. So first off, you have your thing about there's a market for government. Well, if there's a group of people gravitating toward a great man, it's because there's a market for a great man,
2: right? Right. right.
1: So if it's voluntary, if they if they're willing to go into that community and willing to sit at someone's feet and listen to them, then there was a market for that. But second, once that once that dichotomy exists, even if it was formed voluntarily, all the psychological aspects of power come into play, which is why I wonder if it isn't the case that these cults may start sort of voluntarily and then once the power goes to the organizer's head and he starts having some kind of a messiah complex and he starts sort of seeing the greatness that he's able to accomplish, if only he could violate the (laughs) non-aggression principle – then, then that very kind of sociopathy gets into the situation, and at some point later in the cult's existence, it becomes aggressive, it becomes a prison, it becomes coercive. Mm. That seems very logical to me. Well, that's, that's, that's what I like to do. Yeah.
2: <laughs> Therefore- <laughs> you know
1: what I mean? Because the, the, the uh, worst case scenario of cults is always at the end. It's always like hold a gun to your head and hand you the poison. Well, I mean, they didn't do that at the beginning, right? right like, right. A, a cult is, in a sense, a boiling pot with frogs
0: in it, right? Yeah. Um, you know, I wonder, in a, in a theoretical, you know, lib pair type setting... Where there is no government, and and we've been free of government for a couple generations, so it's washed out of the what you might call the collective memory. It's it's not a part of our day to day lives anymore, and we don't sit around and pine for the days when we had a government. Um, I'm sure cults would develop because, like we're saying, they're not they don't break the uh, the non aggression principle in and of themselves. But at what point? Would they, you know, would there be like competing cults developing, and then eventually people would see the aggression, and you would have cults attacking cults, and we, you know, do, I'm I'm seeing a development of little mini states going on.
1: Well, if the surrounding culture was voluntarist, I think that you would um, first off you would see that um, the values of the cult members would sort of be rejecting of certain things that keep them isolated. And you would see people that, that came in and out of a cult and were sort of whistleblowers about what goes on behind closed doors. I think that would definitely happen in a free society. And we're seeing that happen with the Molyneux situation, right? Right. But you would also see, um, people competing philosophically. Like, like you would see people actually, because things are in public, actually refuting the arguments, actually sort of trying to save those people, if that makes sense.
0: Yeah. You know, something that libertarians are regularly accused of is that we're cold-hearted and that we think, you know, well, the market will take care of everything and it's kind of like evolution and the bad stuff will or the weak will get left behind or crushed or, you know, the wheels of capitalism will crush the weak. And in a sense, there's some truth to that. And I wonder if, you know, whatever it is in the brain that causes the things that you uh, – well, let's touch on, let's touch on your, uh, because we're assuming that our audience knows all about your proposed experiments and all that kind of thing. Explain, explain that, all that stuff. So, so not, not
1: necessarily talking about the experiment that I designed, but just talking about the concept itself is that, um, what I mean by authoritarian sociopathy is that there is a lot of sort of established science and there's a lot of sort of potential science that I'd like to see happen, which suggests that it isn't that it isn't only that evil people gravitate toward power, but that possessing power actually has a sort of detrimental effect on a person's moral compass and turns them into evil people. That by being told or be believing that you hold legitimate power over other people, all of your sort of good, you know, human instincts diminish. You become less compassionate. You become less honest. You become. Um man, what's the list? The list is uh you become it becomes easier to lie, it becomes more, you become more hypocritical, meaning more judgmental of others and more lenient on yourself. Um you become less empathetic, meaning you respond. You don't have the normal autonomic responses to other people's suffering that normal people have. <laughs> um autonomic means involuntary, it means your body just does it, right? Like uh, your heart increases when you see the suffering of another person. It's a, it's a involuntary empathetic response mm-hmm. that people in power don't have as much. Uh, so the, so that's what I mean. I mean, like if you, if you, if you build yourself a throne and people come and voluntarily sit at your feet, um, it doesn't matter what the contract in place is. That's going to have the same psychological effect
0: on your brain. Right. And it's not necessarily based on even if any aggression is taking place. It's based on this perception that the individual has that they are somehow special and that they are the great leader and they are endowed somehow.
1: Uh, You know, I think that this would happen much less in a free society because I know like – so I think of us now as – I mean like the earth if I were going to collectivize the species and just say where is earth right now in the whole progress of things? I think of us as sort of like a cusp – we're on a cusp between two epochs, right? Like imagine if somebody invented – excuse me – somebody invented agriculture on one part of the world and it hadn't spread to the rest of the world and it was sort of gradually making its way through the tribes and people were debating whether or not it was a good idea. Like we look at history as there's agriculture and then there's pre-agriculture and Mm. we don't think about that cusp,
0: right? Yeah, exactly. Exactly.
1: And I think right now we're on a cusp. We're on a cusp between uh statism and non-statism. And the idea of non-statism, <clears throat> excuse me, is sort of spreading through the culture and spreading around the planet uh quite quickly, I might add. And um we are seeing the spontaneous emergence of societies within mainstream society that operate this way, right? Like – um, if you go to Porkfest, you're technically in the geographic loca- location of New Hampshire, which is underneath the federal auspices of the U.S. government, which is, you know, on the planet that the U.N. thinks that it owns and operates. Um, but it is this little autonomous zone of people that don't have that illusion in their head. Right. Mm-hmm. And so it would be sort of like if you had one member of a tribe who was like, I'm going to try out this agriculture thing. And so, even though most of the economy of his tribe is not agricultural based and it's still hunter-gatherer based, um, he's sort of operating inside that tribe, if that makes sense. So, we are seeing now, like, whenever there's a conflict, there's this this fork where it's like, okay, so are you gonna like run back to mainstream society, or are you going to, are you going to stay inside the sort of the new epoch of the society that's being built, right? Like, are you going to, are you going to revert or are you going to continue to set precedents and trends inside this new system? And so, um, I see this all the time now, like there are absolutely people who like myself, in fact, like, like, Full disclosure, I was a subscriber to Free Main Radio for two years, I think, a little over two years, meaning he was getting $10 a month from me
2: mm-hmm.
1: uh, automatic automatically through PayPal. And I was listening to every episode, and I've been through every episode twice, and I've read most of his books. And um, I even like sort of uh, – this was about a year ago. I went through all of the episodes and I started categorizing them and I speculated that there could be like a free domain radio curriculum. Like here are all of the really good episodes on school and here are all the really good episodes on parenting. And I was sort of evaluating them. Uh, but the point is I don't have a market for a great man. Like that wasn't why I was interested.
0: You were immune.
1: I, right. And this is, this is what I mean. Like I, I'm not the only one like this. I know people who are, who were. Closer to him than me that had personal relationships with him and were engaged in these conversations, but were never really a member of the board and never really a member of the community. And now they sort of like, they're throwing up their hands and they're like, Hey, take the good, you throw out the bad. Like it's not, they don't feel devastated. Like they found out that Lincoln was a tyrant,
0: right? Yeah. Yeah.
1: And so I wonder if, um, that's a cusp scenario that we're seeing sort of some people who are still in this sort of great man paradigm that feel like they need to see, sit at the feet of a master. And there are other people who – like, look at Socrates, okay? This is great because Molyneux always compares himself to Socrates. When Socrates was told by the Oracle of Delphi that he was the wisest man alive, um, he and he wanted to learn the truth and he wanted to learn philosophy, he didn't, like, say, oh, well, I'm just going to, like, look up in the phone book who the greatest philosopher is and go sit at his feet and see what happens. He walked around to all of the philosophers in the world, listened to everything that they had to say and decided to reject them. <laughs> right. So this is sort of the way that a uh, free society or, a, or a, a free mind that isn't looking for a great man operates is they go around, they sample the available buffet of information and they come to their own conclusions and mm-hmm. they're not beholden to those conclusions. Yeah. Right. So, I mean, there was a time when I, you know, I physically printed out, this is before, um this is when the PDF, I think the PDF is still available for free, but, uh, immediately, mean, like, this is maybe full disclosure here. I, there were parts of, uh, real-time relationships that I didn't like, and there were parts that I thought were really great. This is his book on love. Mm-hmm. And so I took out the parts I didn't like, and I printed my own copies, and I gave them to all my family. <laughs> uh, <laughs> Um, but the point was that I was giving out his information. I was I was adamant that what he was saying was valuable and true, mm-hmm. and um, some of it still is. But yeah. that doesn't mean that the man has to be great.
0: Right. First off, I I think you were right on on everything you just said there. It just everything you were saying. I was just as we were, as you were going <clears> through it. I was like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Well then,
1: you know what you ought to do is you ought to you ought to build me a throne and sit at my feet.
0: I was thinking about that next <laughs> next time we're both at pork fest together. You go sit under the big rock that's uh, that overlooks <clears throat> the the, uh, the 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 arena. You sit under the big rock and cross your legs and hold the, your, the hold guru your hands. rock. Yeah. yeah, the guru rock, and you hold your hands towards the sky, and I'll sit below you, just slightly below you, and and say, Master Davi, what do you think about violence? <laughs> Now, there's like there's a few people who just got that joke, but most of the people probably have no idea what I'm talking That's about.
1: That's a pretty inside joke. <laughs>
0: um, you have to be seated in the lotus position near the, uh, what did we call it? The,
1: the Bu- guru rock? The
0: guru rock, yeah. I started to call there's it the Buddha. There's a lot
1: the of Rs in there. It's hard to use. Hard yeah, to say.
0: Buddha rock. The, the Buddha, Buddha rock. stone. <laughs> um, anyway, Um. What was I going to say? Oh, I remember. Yeah. So, so this desire for a great man, uh, and you know, I've talked quite a bit about that. That's, that's something that I really see as, as a flaw. And I don't know what the source of it is, if it's cultural or if it's genetic or whatever, but there does seem to be the existence of this desire for a great man. And you know we want to look back in history and say and and look at figures in history and put them up on pedestals that are that are completely unrealistic and we We create these cartoonish histories of of these great people that we look back and we think, you know oh, George Washington was so great even." When he was caught chop- chopping down his father's cherry tree, he, he wouldn't lie in order to save his own skin. He, you know, he was so committed to the truth. Well, the truth is, of course, that George Washington's dad died when he was an infant. So the whole story is a lie. But we, but we make up <laughs> things like that, you know, to, to glorify these great men so that we have an excuse to, uh, to have someone in that position in our lives. And I, and I wonder, you know, you were talking about this division, um, and this cusp that we're on, uh, in this, in this change that we're, at least from our side of, of the, we, you know, we're hoping more people catch on. We're hoping more people reject the state. And rejecting the great man theory is, is the major, in my opinion, the major aspect of recognizing that you don't need a state. Um, and considering all that, we don't actually know, like I was saying, if this if this desire for a great man is in 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 us naturally or if it's occurring socially, if we're taught to think that way.
1: I'm so prevalent. It's hard to say. Right.
0: Because, yeah. Yeah. And we don't.
1: So have a I neutral. definitely like I see it in religion. Mm-hmm. Um, I definitely see it in politics when it comes to like, oh, Reagan. Everyone wants to talk about Reagan. So I listen to AM radio because I can't stomach <laughs> left wing radio, but it's still difficult. Um, or uh you know it the first sort of the first mover i guess is um is the family is the 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 parent i feel like um as a toddler there's a point at which you realize that your parents are fallible yeah and that might be difficult or whatever and so i mean it's like there's really no winning for losing if you're really great parents then you allow your kid to sustain that assumption longer which might be dangerous <laughs> and if you're really bad parents then you might crush them when you destroy that illusion and they might go out into the world looking for the better parent right mm. like the jungian archetypal parent um so i that
0: that seems like a
1: source to me although i don't know
0: if we if we think of this on a global scale it's it's part of my um it's part of my belief about the future and, and I'm not cemented into this, but I tend to believe in this direction, that as government gets bigger and dumber and uglier and meaner, um, it's going to start to consume the the very people that support it. Uh, because I, I think the way I'm looking at the future, I think to a large degree people who think the way we're that we think will withdraw more and more and to a large extent will become less and less visible to government and i'm not sure exactly how that's going to take place but that's this is kind of how i foresee the future of, of mm-hmm. happening more and more people who reject you know the the desire for government will disappear from the view of government and it will grow more and more frustrated and more and more evil and more and more stupid which is the tendency of government to do until the point of where it has to kill somebody and so it'll kill off its greatest supporters and I, I hate to make this sound like some kind of a eugenics program, but um, if if it is a genetic thing that causes people to, to desire that kind of uh, leadership, then in essence, the ultimate development of the state, whether that takes another 50 years or 50,000 years or whatever it takes for the state to do this, ultimately it'll remove all those people from the human race because it itself will grow to the point of where it, it kills them all off until it doesn't exist anymore. And then all we have to do is go in and clean up the pieces. Does that sound uh, – could I be a good uh, cult leader with a story like that? I mean if you start
1: with the premise that it's genetic, um, that sounds like a reasonable outcome. I don't think that it is genetic uh, and that's because of the authoritarian sociopathy stuff. That, uh, to me, it seems like something that it's, it, it is perhaps genetic in the sense that it's part of the human brain, but it is the way that it is the way that our brain reacts to our environment. And so you could essentially have a, a dormant statism, mm-hmm. <laughs> right? Just waiting for it to be put in a position of power. <laughs> you know, I think that another part of it is, um, sort of coping with the complexity of the market system that a lot of the reason that people like great man as a, as a theory of history is because it's too complex and too varied and too, there are too many variables and too many impossible to know causes and effects throughout history as a result, like as a result of the complexity of society. And so um it's just easier to say Lincoln did it.
0: <laughs> yeah. Well, I, I think that you're really hitting on something there that's important because you know, when, when water travels downhill, it seeks the easiest route. When mm-hmm. electricity goes from point A to point B, it seeks the easiest route, whatever is the best, the, the, the most conductive path it will take. It may not be the closest path. It may not be what seems to be the right path or the most logical path, but somehow it will always take. Uh, the easiest path possible. And human beings are the same way. You know, if, if, um, or you could think of ants, ants, uh, moving from, from where they found a food source back to their entrance of their, uh, you know, of, of their den or whatever, um, they will try to make the most efficient path, the, the easiest path possible, even to the point of where if they need to dig a new hole to come up right next to the, where the food source is, they'll rather dig the hole. And open their den up in a whole new place than have to carry it a real long distance, exposing themselves to to danger. Yeah. So humans have that same tendency. We want to take the easiest route possible to get the most uh, um, reward as possible. And if somebody else, if we can just put the leadership role off on somebody else instead of us carrying it, you know, each individual being their own leader – if we can just dump that on somebody else um then that's easier it's less work you don't have to think about it and i think to a large degree i hate to say this especially you know both of us are theists and but to a large degree i think that's what a lot of of religion is it's i can believe this basic framework and then i don't have to pursue anything further and really question what is the truth because i can already label myself i'm a christian or i'm a muslim or i'm uh, you know yeah I'm, and you don't have to think any further. You can just say, well, I don't know about that, but the Pope's taking care of it. You know. That
1: hasn't been my experience at all, though.
0: <laughs> for you like, personally, you mean? For, for
1: me personally. Like, there's this idea that um, this is sort of an academic perspective that religions were created by men throughout history um, to cope with inanswerable questions about death and life and purpose and morality and things like that. And so rather than sort of then then sort of sit in the uncomfortable position of not knowing they invented an impossible answer <laughs> right this is sort of like oh why does the why does the skunk have stripes if the cat doesn't well the skunk you know pissed off the oak tree and then it was struck by lightning like <laughs> you know what i mean like right. there are stories like that that are origin myths right um but that has not been my experience at all of of i mean i'm a convert to islam right and so i came at it uh having to sort of learn it and my my experience was never that I had these ponderous, unanswerable questions and then I just took the answer of the guy. My experience has always been like, well, this is either literal or this is metaphor. And whether it's literal or metaphor, the world outside of the book is far more complex than the book itself. And so there's still so much to ponder. Like <laughs> uh my experience has been that I'm constantly looking for answers, even on the ones that seem to have
0: <laughs> the answers, if that makes sense. It makes perfect sense, and it also kind of matches the reason that you and I um, maybe are uh, what are um, immune to the great man, because you know I, I've known a lot of people who were devoutly religious, and they fit that uh, they fit that mold perfectly. They 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 were the original religion. They were because it was easy and convenient and simple, and they didn't have to think about it. So they just were. It's easier to just wear the label than to actually pursue anything. And typically that person is the same religion as their parents raised them to be. And they, they've never had any, you know, actual journey in their life to seek out what they really believe. And I, and I think maybe even the majority of, uh, of really religious people that I've known were like that. But there's been a very small pocket of people who were what you described, which is how I, I kind of, uh, I haven't been consistent at that. I would be, I, in the, uh, like in my early twenties, I pursued with vigor and then all of a sudden I stopped and I didn't want to think about it for like 10 years. And then I went back and pursued again and just redefined and re-questioned everything. And, you know, uh, it was almost a, an obsession each time, but, but I was seeking the truth. I wasn't seeking leadership and I wasn't seeking, you know, um, what's the easiest way to do this? And, and it's certainly not the easiest in, in a lot of ways, but, um, but I think that's what sets us apart from a lot of other people who would just prefer to take whatever the easiest route is, you know, accept what their, what their parents believed, not question it and just keep moving on. So, so again, I guess it's kind of like your zombie story where some people are, um some people are susceptible to the disease and some people are immune
1: yeah this is um this is sort of the quintessential metaphor i'm working with with the zombie story is um and it is in a sense what you're saying where the state eventually kills its own like in in um in survivor max that's what the virus is doing it is the act of sort of nature has introduced this element to the to the human population and it turns aggressive people into zombies and it turns um, voluntarist or sort of healthy, empathetic people, uh, into survivors because mm. they're immune. And so, um, I'm writing about the cusp of a society that, uh, those people who are aggressive eventually join the mob of people that the survivors are protecting themselves from and they become the enclave. They become the new society that is rebuilding in the ruins. And uh, I think that that is a really, like, there is a sense that, um, not, not talking about government, not talking about constitutions, not talking about any of it. There's a sense at which at its root, aggression is cannibalistic. Yeah. If, if that makes sense. Not only because you're, you're consuming somebody who is like you, uh, but in a sense, you're also consuming yourself because to, to put down that weapon and to engage with people voluntarily is, is more profitable. <laughs> so it's more work. But it's it's also more of a benefit to yourself, right? And so you're also harming yourself when you when you are engaging in an, a systematic aggression.
0: I think so, and it, that even to to lesser degrees than aggression, that even applies to what we were talking about, like with being a jerk earlier. That um, the more you act that way, the the more it almost infects you and makes you that way. And so for me. I prefer not acting like a jerk uh whenever I can because i don't like the feeling of it, and i've found that the more I do of that, the more of it the more of a jerk I become, and then it gets hard at some point to stop being a jerk you know mm-hmm. so so I think it's the same way I think it is uh it is harmful uh aggression is harmful to the person committing the aggression on on different levels, including psychologically but also uh kind of in the way that you pointed out too uh it's it's actually less it gives you less reward in the end so it's very much like in the marketplace whatever the government does it's always going to be less uh successful at it less efficient at it um, than what the private than what's done privately because of the motivations involved and the waste involved in government and all that kind of stuff
1: it's sort of I mean in a real sense, the market system is an evolutionary process, and um, this is again to avoid sounding like a eugenicist <laughs> uh, <laughs> it it is that inefficient systems fail in the market system and efficient systems succeed in the market system right mm-hmm. and that and that like I see a common thread all the way from a very complex tech company to the ant who decides where it's better to walk and where it's better to dig a second hole. Mm -hmm. Like all of it is about, um, the maximizing of resources for the minimizing of work. And, um, in that sense, it's all like, we are part of the natural system, right? And so the market system is part of, it's part of an ecosystem and it's part of the natural order. To seek out more efficient systems and root out uh, less efficient systems. But for humanity, um, there are resistances to evolution as a result of superstition, if that makes sense. And so there are these great hangups where – like imagine if you believed out of like some sort of like irrational religious fervor that Walmart was better than Target, Right. Walmart had better prices than Target and that was just taken as an article of faith by some people right
2: mm-hmm.
1: well that would be a market signal to Walmart to raise their prices <laughs> right yeah, yeah. and and if and if those people refused to even look at the prices at Target because it, it's it's sort of like the medieval scholars who refused to look in Galileo's telescope because they already knew what they were going to see
2: mm-hmm.
1: then um that is going to cause like like, I don't know what to ca- even call it, like it's almost like it's a knot in the thread or it's a tumor or it's a it's a it's a boulder in the flow of water you were talking about mm. it It creates systemic um inefficiency and it um it turns the incentives of the evolutionary process on its head because you're incentivizing the less efficient system by refusing to adopt the more efficient system. And so the process of evolution for humans in society has been um to overcome superstitions about the way they think society should run and and should run at the detriment of the people in society, right?
0: Yeah, and that, that kind of applies to what we are talking about with cults earlier, too, because that's a phenomenon that happens in the cult once the person gets swallowed into a certain point then they don't wanna look at the evidence that that the thing is a cult, or they don't want to look at the evidence that their leader in you know in the guise of taking them to Guyana or whatever, it's you know, it's a really bad idea that's not gonna turn out well. They don't wanna know that. They don't wanna they refuse to look at the evidence because if they do that, then it has it goes back to their shaking their their faith that they have that, that holds them in that to begin with.
1: Right. And I mean, Colleen, who um on the Freedom Fiends the other day even said that that happened in the Freedom Main Radio community that and she's sort of an ex-member who has sort of been talking about her experience. She said that they were discouraged from researching the criticisms of Molyneux stuff, which is the same as saying, I don't need to look at the prices at Target. I know that the prices at Target or Walmart are
0: cheaper. Right. So, so that's not aggression. It's just um just not the wisest way to behave.
1: For sure. I remember reading I always this always comes up to me when we talk about intellectual property. There's um so first off you have Thomas Jefferson who who was engaged who was involved in the patent office somehow. He had he held a position at the patent uh,
0: Yeah, he was the in, first in, uh was it? uh the first head of the patent office. I can't remember what the title is.
1: Yeah. But he was sort of there are statements that he made more more privately that seemed to be against intellectual property, and one of them was about this plow that he invented. And um I don't remember the name of it but he he essentially invented a more efficient plow and um when asked about it he even denied having invented it. He said that it was um that it was just math. <laughs> <laughs> that uh I forget there's a kind of geometry or trigonometry or something that allowed him to calculate the more efficient shape that a plow ought to be and he saw this as this was going to, this was human progress was applying rational processes to old systems to make me more efficient. And so he mathematically calculated what the most efficient shape of a plow would be and began manufacturing it. And he had no objection he didn't patent it and he had no objection to other people using it because he said, Look, I didn't invent this thing. I just did the math. The math was pre existent, right? And so that has always been the way that I think about the things we give great men credit for. It isn't it isn't that you know, Stefan Molyneux discovered or invented or whatever his philosophy, it's that it's either true or it's not. And it was true before he was alive and it'll be true after he's alive or it isn't right. And if it wasn't him, it would have been somebody else because there's a market for truth out there. So, um, this is what you say about Ron Paul too, that if Ron Paul had never existed, the market for Liberty still exists and somebody else would have been put up on that podium. Right?
0: Yeah. Yeah. The word would have got out some other way because the desire wasn't for, Ron Paul, um, the desire was for somebody to say out loud, "This is wrong, this is what's really right, yeah, so
1: it's the same thing. It isn't that we owe everything all the good that ever came from this plow we owed to Thomas Jefferson right right, right It's that if Thomas Jefferson had never lived, somebody else would have done that math,
0: yeah Thomas Jefferson uh I have to be careful here and not go off on an hour-long tangent. And, and then I, I guess I could do that. I could go off on an hour-long tangent on Thomas Jefferson call it, and call it the truth about Thomas Jefferson.
2: But,
0: <laughs> but he was a weird character. He um, he would speak out very boldly against something and then um, – Someone would send him a a a, a private letter because I've I've spent a lot of times read a lot of time reading the private letters of these different guys.
1: Yeah, I've read a lot of them too.
0: And uh, somebody would send him a letter challenging what he said, and he was super polite in his communications back and forth. I think that was a cultural thing of the day to be really really polite in letters, because maybe they understood what a lot of people don't understand today. It, uh, that is that text can be very very rude. Um, but, but whatever it was, he would be polite in the letters and then very often he would in his life adopt the opposite position that he had been so bold to speak about in the past. So you have the examples of slavery where, um, he was, he spoke very clearly that slavery was wrong and yet he owned slaves and he owned slaves because there was a law that said, You know, you can sell them like this and you can't sell them like that. And there are certain circumstances where you're allowed to sell them and where you're not allowed to sell them. And so he obeyed that law and kept his slaves rather than saying, this is immoral, I'm not going to have slaves. And he spoke against having the Constitution. He he spoke against having a federal government, but then became involved in it and actually was you know vice president and then president. Well, how can you say we shouldn't have a federal government? How can you say the constitution's a bad idea and then you actually go out and run for the office of presidency twice? Well, actually three times, cuz once he he failed and became vice president and twice he became president. Or maybe even twice he was vice president, I'm not sure. But he was a very contradicting person that would say one thing and then sort of back off a little in private letters and then in his life he would do exactly the opposite and and i th- i think it wasn't because he was a bad guy or inconsistent i think he was like well if somebody has to be president then in, you know i guess i should try to be that president to minimize the amount of damage and if somebody has to be head of the patent office i guess i'll be that person who's head of the patent office so i can minimize the damage
1: but he didn't no
0: he didn't that's minimize
1: the damage this and is the, the fallacy the Louisiana of Louisiana
0: purchase was jefferson yeah yeah <laughs> like, this is this is the fallacy of government he once he got that power it's just like what you were talking about with the um uh why is it that won't stick in my head with when people become powerful it changes
1: authoritarian the, sociopathy yeah it's a it's a mouthful
0: of a term i know but that's exactly what happened to him as soon as he not as soon as but once he got into the power of the presidency he goes right in, violates the Constitution, makes arrangements that had, no president had ever done, sets a whole new precedent for the president, and uh, and essentially violates the law in putting together the Lewis and Clark expedition, outfitting them, financing them, sending them off into a territory part of the territory that the Lewis and Clark expedition claimed for the U S was already claimed by Russia and already claimed by, uh, Spain and already claimed by, um, uh, England. So in a sense, you know, he was stealing land. Uh, if you believe in the government idea of a government owning land, he was stealing land from the Russians and the, and the, uh, Spaniards and the, uh, and the English. So he was doing everything to violate the things that he had said that he believed, but he was doing it because he had come into that position and all of a sudden he could justify lying or he could justify, you know, doing these acts of aggression um, because his mind had literally been twisted by, by the power itself.
1: I kind of think of I, – I have two sort of summaries of Thomas Jefferson. One is he knew full well that when he was writing private letters that he was writing for posterity. And the reason that you know this is because he kept copies of all of them.
0: Yeah. Yeah.
1: So he, um, he invented this device that it's almost like carbon copying. Um, but it's, it's this like mechanism where if you write with a pen on one sheet of paper, it copies your movement on another sheet of paper so that he had copies of every letter and he kept documents of everything he ever wrote. So, um, I think of his private letters as his letters to posterity. And I think of his political actions as his sort of current expediency for what he thinks the world should look like. And I think one is—I think that one's less legitimate, even though it's what he did, and he shouldn't be forgiven for it. um, That—that's how I interpret his actions. Um, But on top of that, as a as a person, as a as a his personality. Jefferson didn't take criticism very well. He was very concerned with having be, having a positive assessment from people mm-hmm. and people uh, sort of socially approving of him. And like there's this uh, – I forget where I read this, but he talks about um, how grueling it was to see these other people pine over his draft of the Declaration of Independence because every edit – To him seemed like a dagger that, that they were, they were rejecting him and his thoughts and what he wrote and his original draft. And he took that personally. And so he couldn't be present for it. He couldn't, he was very quiet in the convention. And I think he even didn't attend a lot of it. Um, and so I also see a person who is, has all these maybe great ideas, but he doesn't enact them because he's, he's constantly concerned about being approved of by the people who don't even share his
0: ideas. Yeah that that actually sounds very much that you're describing my my take on him as well.
1: But well, luckily, you know, he's not a great man. <laughs> so I don't have to I don't have to sit at his feet and listen to everything he ever said.
2: <laughs> so
0: <laughs> and you know the fact that we can take him apart like that and and show his warts and and all of his bumps and bruises and everything and I mean that's that's kind of what all of us should be well, let me put it this way. Um, I had this has happened a couple times with me uh, because I have sort of an abrasive um, personality at times, especially mm-hmm. in text on the internet, and especially if I'm tired, and somebody is badgering me with stupid questions or stupid contradictions, or if I've made an attempt to to ex, let's say I've let's say I have made an attempt to explain something and I've put a lot of effort into it, and maybe I wrote a thousand words on it and did a podcast on it or whatever. And then somebody just comes in and goes, yeah, well, what about the roads? Um, I have a tendency not to be polite and sit down and explain the roads. I'll either just <laughs> point in some other direction or I'll essentially tell them, go away, find somebody who can answer your question. I don't have time. And that has offended, you know, that that I'm not necessarily even defending myself in being that way. This is a character flaw that I have. but um, But at times... You know, I can come across pretty abrasive in, in dealing with people like that. So I have really irritated some people at different times. And a couple of them, um, got so angry at me that they decided to take part of their life and focus it on trying to hurt me. One of these guys actually went to the point, and this was in the, in reference to Ron Paul serving the takedown notices to ronpaul.com or whatever it was. And, uh, I had taken the position that he's using government to aggress upon somebody else's property. And, uh, and this person got really mad at me over this, and because I was popping the Ron Paul bubble. And so they decided to teach me a lesson, because evidently in their mind, they thought, well, Ben's not smart enough to understand what poor Ron Paul is going through with somebody else using his name. So the only way to make Ben understand how horrible it is for somebody to use your name is to go and use Ben Stone's name and try to make him look bad. So they did. They took a picture of me. They built a website. They put a lot of effort, and it cost money out of their pocket to do this. And they got all this stuff, and then they pointed me to it, and they said, look, look, now what do you think about IP? And I was like, nothing has changed. Take a picture of me. Take take." Anything that I've said, anything that's recorded of me, hide behind a bush, take pictures of me, do whatever you want to do, and do anything you want with it. That's, I don't have any control over that. That's not my property. I don't own my reputation. You do anything with it you want, and you're not going to hurt me or my property. And the guy, it was just like, the, he couldn't get through to the guy. He So he would try it, try it harder. You know, he would try harder to hurt me. Uh, get a picture of my wife. Put that on the website. Um, Say nasty things at different social uh, uh, websites. And it's not that these things didn't annoy me. They did annoy me. But I understood that I don't own my reputation. And it's just that simple. So if somebody else wants to call themselves Ben Stone, the bad Quaker, and set up a parallel website and pretend that they're me while saying horrible things, I don't have any control over that. That's not – they're not – you know it, it it the market will decide what the market wants maybe the market wants some crazy racist angry filled bad quaker named ben stone that's you know preaching about how great the state is maybe the market wants that if so you know go for it i it's not my uh, i don't own that that image where was i going the, with that to start with
1: <laughs> i don't know but the place where you took me was back to doxing um that fundamentally the um the bad stuff, the bad part of doxing, the thing that people are upset about is that it has harmed their reputation. Yeah. So if they don't own their reputation, then uh it's not aggression. So like these Damon videos, some of which are interesting because the ones that I've seen, they don't seem to hurt the reputation of the person. Like one of them is – um it's a uh, audio, it's the audio of a conversation between a member of FDR and Stefan Molyneux of a young woman talking about how she, uh, had a relationship with a 61 year old man. And that's bad for some reason. <laughs> so, and I listen to it and I'm like, she comes off as a very sympathetic character in this video. She's talking about how like she feels more mature than a lot of the people her age and she had a real connection with this guy and she was sort of like, she was just seeking confirmation. She wanted to sort of walk through it with someone to see if there was some sort of daddy issue going on, but it didn't sound like there was. And so, you know, this person's trying to harm people's reputation by exposing what they have said in these private conversations, which were broadcast publicly. <laughs> and um I just, I don't get the sense that it's aggression. I don't get the sense that, um that you own your reputation,
0: right? Well, I think Walter Block, the way he puts it, is that the, the your reputation exists in the minds of other people. So it's not your property. It's in their mind. You can't own something that's in somebody else's mind. And yeah. I, and I think that's really the, the fund, fundamental thing that some people have a real hard time understanding. You think, well, it's my reputation. Why is it your reputation? Well, because it, it's in the word, my reputation. That means it's mine.
1: Well, I mean, that's a decent point. Maybe we should be calling it um, the reputation of you.
0: (laughs) The reputation of said individual. Um, Because that's what it is. Yeah, it's what other people think about you. And you can't own their thoughts. You can only own your own thoughts until the moment uh, that you share them. And then they become out there uh, for other people to ponder. And so they're not yours anymore once you've shared them. The only way that you can have... The only way intellectual property exists is if you think of something originally on your own and you don't tell it to anyone. You just think about it. And then I guess you could own that intellectual property. But the minute that you share it, it means you shared it. It's right there in the word. You shared it.
1: You know, the other thing about the Molyneux thing, as far as what sort of expectation of privacy these people had something that he does that you don't hear in the podcast but that absolutely happens is if you have a if you have a recording with him he sends you the recording afterwards and then asks for your permission to publish it really yeah so like it would be like so we're recording right now and we discussed ahead of time that this is going on the podcast or like i i just know that right if this had been a conversation with him in an effort to sort of not fall into the trap of censoring yourself for the publicity of it, he gives you the option of keeping it quiet and silent. And then he'll say, I'm going to send you the file of this and then you listen to it. And if you're comfortable with me publishing it for the good of other people, then let me know and I'll publish it. And that's the way it works. And so uh, all of those people, they not only called into a show that was public they also listened to it after the fact and approved it being public.
0: I, I had no idea that that was going on, and that just really – it's like I don't have a problem with, with a person doing that. It just seems horribly redundant for somebody that doesn't believe in IP or that says that they don't believe in IP.
1: Well, that's, I think, a courtesy because he's – the idea there is that he's providing a service, right? It's, um, it's almost like uh, therapist-patient
0: confidentiality. Wow. I'll have to think about that a little bit. That really strikes me odd.
1: Well, so like imagine if um imagine if I had like a real personal problem and I wanted to talk to you on Skype and I said, "Hey, can we not do a show? I just want to pick your brain because I'm having a personal problem." It would be reasonable if after the fact I said, "You know, I think this might be a benefit to other people. It's okay with me if you publish this." Yeah. But I wouldn't assume because it was over Skype that it's published. Yeah.
0: On the other hand, every single conversation I have on Skype or on a telephone, I assume 15, 20 people are listening anyway.
1: <laughs> yeah, that's true, too.
0: <laughs> <sighs> but then again, I'm paranoid, and I and I see spooky things behind every, every bush watching me, staring at me. Not quite. I'm not quite that bad. Well, you want to cover anything else before we uh, hang it up here, Dovey? I think we've covered doxing pretty well. Yeah.
1: Um, we still got to do a show on zombies one of these days.
0: (laughs) Yeah, we really (laughs) uh, do. Let's give a little little bit – we talked a little bit about your book, but let's give a little bit of a commercial for your book. Sure. Um, Actually, now, we're looking at a series, right? Uh,
1: It is a trilogy. I I have a a three-book deal, and there's talk of doing an ongoing series if the trilogy does well, and I like that idea. I'll probably keep using these characters even if I change publishers Um, because I have – I've already had ideas of how I want to build this thing, like, uh, once Max grows up a little bit, like, so right now Max is 11 in the first book and he's, it's, the first book is about the outbreak and about him surviving alone. Um, his dad is infected and he sort of has to apply this, um, survivor training that he had. Uh, so he, you know, he, it's, it's about getting resources, getting water and food and security and, He's too young and too small to fight a zombie physically and there's no firearms in his apartment complex as a matter of the housing agreement. And so, um, he has to trick them and trap them and whatever. And so, uh, people have called it home alone with zombies. <laughs>
2: um,
1: but the second book, there's a whole new cast of characters. He, um, I was gonna say he goes to the refugee center, but the fact of the matter is he is picked up by the refugee center and taken there against his will. <laughs> um because he's just a kid. You can't let a kid out in the wild like that. So anyway, own good.
0: It's for the children.
1: The um his school, his middle school, Thornton Middle School, has been sort of taken over by both the faculty and the local police department and uh, an army major who sort of showed up um and turned into a refugee center. And they're sort of running it internally because it's surrounded by zombies, right? And so they're surviving on the inside and they bring him in and he's sort of seeing the way that these aggressive people have organized themselves and he's sort of trying to figure out either how to escape or how to survive inside. And so the second book is called School Bites. And then the third book is um, going to be him finding the other Pork Scouts. And these are the other kids like him who were homeschooled who have this survivor training and they've been surviving in a cabin near a lake. Uh, Pork Scouts is the Porcupine Freedom Scouts, which is sort of like uh, libertarian parents raising libertarian children who are very sort of well-suited to fend for themselves. And um, so the two – the last two books will be that juxtaposition, right? Uh, but the idea is – and this is something I think is throughout zombie canon – is that the more aggressive of a human being you were, the more aggressive of a zombie you become.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: And um, the reason I think that that's the case, I don't think it's deliberate on the part of the writers, but I think that it is part of the metaphor, right? And there's a sense in which a metaphor is a market function, and if artists play with symbols long enough, they'll get to the truth of a metaphor, even if they don't know it. If you look at the Romero movies, the hero zombie, that is the zombie who is... um more intelligent for some reason or whatever is almost always a soldier or a police officer. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, so like you have this mad scientist in day of the dead who has this zombie he's named Bub and he has him trapped in a laboratory and he's trying to teach him things. And lo and behold, Bub is able to learn things. He learns to sort of, he doesn't read a book, but he holds a book properly and he doesn't, you know, he has a Walkman that he likes listening to and things like this. And then as soon as the Major walks in, Bub perks up and salutes the Major. <laughs> right? It's just like, oh, so Bub has all of this muscle memory because he has this military training, right? Um, and then in uh, – I forget the other thing. It was Dawn of the Dead, the one in the shopping mall. The zombie that discovers their false wall. They have a, a bunker inside the mall that has a fake wall, and that's how they sort of keep out of the mall. Mm-hmm. The, the zombie that sees through the fake wall is the Major. <laughs> Right. So um I mean, Romero, if you listen to his interviews, he's saying it's all about capitalism and it's all about consumerism. And he's playing with the sort of very surface metaphor of they eat things, therefore they're consumers. <laughs> and he has to force that onto the metaphor. Right. Like he has to put his stories in shopping malls to make the zombies look like shoppers wandering around shopping malls. Like it's not native to the metaphor. It's him imposing it. Right. Yeah. But even in his writing or even in his movies, um, the aggressive people are always the villains. They're the villains as heroes and then they're the nasty zombies when they change.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: So, so, um, I think that's the metaphor. I think the metaphor is if, uh, if you're an aggressive person and, and you're willing to survive by consuming the sustenance of others, then you're already
0: a zombie. <laughs> yeah. And the more like of that you are, the more statist you are, then the more of the zombie you are.
1: Right. And so becoming a zombie is really just about uh, your insides becoming your outsides, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. You're you're already aggressive. You're already willing to consume your fellow man to survive. You're already, you know, I, I, I think of them as democratic. Zombies are demo- de- democratic monsters <laughs> because they outnumber the survivors. And, you know, it's okay, right? That perfectly obeys the majoritarian ethic. If if there are 10 zombies and they decide that they want to eat one survivor for dinner, then uh he that's should democracy. Be happy with that. yeah. This is what democracy looks like. <laughs>
0: um but if we if we make it a republican uh, uh version, then that just means that the 10 zombies would get together and vote on one leader that would then go and eat the guy.
1: Yeah, I mean, the, so there's this famous expression, democracy is two wolves and a sheep deciding on dinner. Right. And, you know, Republicans love to say that because they love to point out it's a republic, not a democracy. Well, I mean, all a republic is is um two wolves and a sheep too stupid to vote for their own dinner. <laughs> and so they elect a farmer.
0: <laughs> That's good. That was that was worth the, the overtime we're into just to get to that. <laughs> Um, okay. So, where can a person get Zombie Max?
1: Uh, check out SurvivorMax.com. The first book is there. The first chapter is on the webpage. You can also find Facebook.com slash SurvivorMax. And there, if you go there, there are chapter fragments of the unpublished book. I'm working on the second book now. I'm almost done. But the first draft I put up on Facebook to solicit comments from people.
0: I said and Zombie ba- Max instead of Survivor Max. I'm no, not he's sorry.
1: not a zombie. <laughs> he <laughs> a Survivor Max. Is
0: not the zombie. So, Survivor Max. <laughs> and then, um, Uh, shiny badges
1: yeah shiny badges.com and there is also i mean fun thing about shiny badges.com there's um there's a pork scouts tab now and so if you go to uh, either shiny badges.com and click on the pork scouts tab or if you just go to pork scouts.com it'll redirect there you can see um there's like patches that i've made and buttons that i've made and uh there's a multi tool there's a survivor max multi tool that's like a knife and a bottle opener and a flashlight that are sort of like it's sort of like um as if pork scouts were real this is the stuff they would get
0: <laughs> hey let's go in in one other direction too uh give one more shout out oh hang on uh, uh hang on one second here davi are you still with me
3: it's michael dean
0: michael did you hang
3: up did you hang up on davi
0: i don't think so davi are you there
3: you probably put him on hold. Um, oh,
0: here we go. I got it. Okay. There we go. Davi? Davi?
3: Davi? Yeah. Hey. yeah. So, am I am I on the podcast?
0: Yeah, let me give okay. uh, let me finish my shout out real quick and then we'll uh, okay. we'll we'll do that. So, um uh Davi, I wanted to ask if you're still involved in Muslims for Liberty.
1: I am. I mean, I'm not writing as much as I was before, and I feel like I've kind of I've completed that canon if that makes sense there's still something for me to write um about taxes because a lot of muslims will say that there's taxes in the in the scripture and i just don't think there is um, but that's a big research project that i haven't finished enough, well enough to write about yet so i'm still involved will and i are involved um, i do art for them sometimes but because i'm not writing as much anymore i'm just not publishing on the
0: blog as much anymore and that was really my primary role there so the links i'm going to put in today's show notes are for shiny badges for Survivor Max and for Muslims for Liberty and for Freedom Fiends, where you're one of the co-hosts on the Freedom Fiends radio show, and Shiny Badger broadcast live coast to coast on—is it Michael? Is it 26 channels now?
3: Yes, 26 stations.
0: And that's Michael Dean, Michael W. Dean of Freedom Fiends that has joined us. Uh, you guys want to keep going or you want to just, uh, wrap up the podcast this, this and just is, chat? This
3: is the, this is the phone company. We have an emergency. We need to interrupt your call. You ever have that happen? I you never. You can actually have. do that. No. You can actually pay $5. Used to be able to. I don't know if you still can, but like you can, uh, pay $5 and have the, the operator interrupt a phone call that's busy if you need to talk to somebody. Wow. Yeah. Um, how long have you guys been talking? Uh, hour and 20 minutes. Why don't you save it? Why don't you save it and, uh, yeah, save the file and then, uh, let's chat. Okay. Um, folks, if you want
0: to hear more from Michael Dean and if you want to hear more from Davi and if you want to hear more from me,
3: be if sure. If you want to hear more interruptions from Michael
0: Dean, yeah. go on. It's what Michael does best. No, um, get over to, uh, uh, Freedom Fiends. That's com and check out the show there and, uh, Thanks for listening today, and remember to visit BadQuaker.com, where liberty is our mission. Thanks a lot, Yeah,
3: but before you – did you stop mm-hmm. recording? No, go ahead. Okay, because now I have to – I had to wake up and call you guys. Uh, I tried to call you on the phone, but your wife uh, – I couldn't understand what she was saying because you're in a weird cell place but a good Internet place. And I figured you were doing the podcast, The Secret, uh, you know, that you invited me to, and I said I couldn't do. But I woke up, read some stuff, had to talk – and so I'm calling you to do the um, the secret – what do we call our secret podcast we don't record? Bohemian Grove? No. no. The Bavarian Grove. No. B- the Bavarian, Gul- Bavarian Gulch. Bavarian yeah. Bavarian, Bavarian Gulch. Where yeah. the three of us meet online once a week to centrally plan liberty. Okay. That's what we're going to do next. We're not going to record it. You can stop the file now. Thank you. Thanks a lot. <laughs>